Listener Production. I would like to be Roxanne Gay when I grow up. And that's not a joke. And yes, I recognise that I am technically grown up already. But Roxanne is truly an extraordinary talent. The American-born writer is of Haitian descent and is known internationally as a New York Times best-selling author, a speaker, a podcaster, a teacher, a cultural icon. I had the privilege of interviewing Roxanne recently for the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne. We spent an hour unpacking race, privilege, bodies, feminism, and yes, bad reality TV. What you're about to hear is an excerpt of our conversation, which was recorded live at the Melbourne Convention Centre. So it could be a tad echoey. Coming up is the weekend list where Bron and I recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to this Easter long weekend. But first, here is the inimitable Roxanne Gay. Roxanne. Jamila. Let's have a chat. Let us. Let us. Roxanne, why are people so mean on the internet? (sighs) Wow, there's, I mean, there are so many answers to that question. I think a lot of people feel very impotent in their day-to-day lives, Mm. and they have very little recourse for their grievances. And so you can go online and engage with strangers, essentially, and you have the anonymity of screen. And so I think that allows people to give in to their baser impulses. Yeah. I think we've got a habit and we are addicted to it here in Australia, perhaps more than other places in the world, of building women up, Mm. up and up and up and up and up until they're so cool, so smart and so everywhere that we've got nothing else left to do except bring them down for sport. Mm -hmm. Do you worry that'll happen to you? I think it already does. And... I predicted it and I wrote about it in Bad Feminist when I said, don't put me on a pedestal. And yet people seem to do so anyway. There seems to be a real pleasure that people take in building people up only to be able to take them down. And so, yes, I worry about it quite a lot. But I also, on my better days, just think, okay, go ahead. Like, I can go work at Starbucks. I have no problem. Like, that is a fine job, and I will do it if I need to. And so when you give yourself that freedom to decouple what you do from who you are, it makes it a lot easier to sort of roll with the very many career-related punches that you're going to encounter. On my lesser days, I'm just like, I'm going to lose everything. I don't know what I'm going to do. But... I also always constantly remind people that I'm human and sometimes I'm going to have lousy opinions. Not often, though. (laughs) Truly, I mean, I'm sorry, but I'm right. (laughs) But, you know, I do try to own it when I have an opinion that is not as well-informed as it could be. Public shaming of women is... It's not new. It's not something that started happening with the internet. We were doing it long before... I was reading an incredible conversation between you and Monica Lewinsky in mm, preparation yeah, for today. Yeah, that was a good one. Do you think it's easier for men to bounce back from that kind of public shaming than women, or can anyone recover? I think it's easier for wealthy people to bounce back <laughs> from that kind of public shaming. Mm. And yes, also men. I think the closer you are to cisgender, heterosexual, white, and male 
um, the closer you are to really encountering no consequences at all when you behave badly. Women do receive quite a lot of public shaming, and Monica Lewinsky is actually a really good example. You know, Bill Clinton was president like a hundred years ago, and people still, I have seen it, to this day, will make insults about what happened when she was 19, yeah. when she's talking about the weather. And whatever mistakes she may have made, like, let it go. It's over. And also, who wouldn't? <laughs> oh, I agree. I agree with you. At the time, you know, like, if I was 19 and President Obama was like... <laughs> <laughs> come into my office, my secret office, I'd be like, be right there. So... You know, I do think that the grudges that we hold against women last far longer, and men, they bounce back all the time. I mean, Joe mm. Rogan is trucking along. Mm. Um, the comedian that likes to whip his dick out, uh, Louis C.K., he's back on tour. Bill Cosby is thriving out of prison. So, yes, that's the short answer. <laughs> I get the sense that apologising is becoming an art form mm. now. Um, you know, you are a famous person, particularly a famous white bloke who says the wrong thing or who messes up or has a slip or is just downright rude or abusive to someone. Mm -hmm. And you issue the right cleverly worded statement and that's okay. And it sort of abrogates you of responsibility at the same time. Okay, like, first of all, let's just kudos for abrogate... Oh, thanks, girl. I love a sexy vocabulary. <laughs> For the woman with memory loss, that's the greatest compliment of my life. Uh. <laughs> um, why do you think we're so scared to own our own mistakes? Because something I've noticed about you, you don't really make mistakes, but... Thank you. Now I do, all the time. But you have a willingness to say, I think I've messed up. I do have a willingness to say, I think I messed up. And... It doesn't come easily, but I see what happens when people don't apologize, and I see the frustration that it engenders and the pain. And I don't want to be that person. I really don't. And the reality is that sometimes I do make mistakes and cause harm, and the best way to start to undo that harm, however small the harms can be, what may seem small to me may not be small to someone else. And so I try to recognize what I did and to apologize for what I did and the effect it had rather than to apologize for how someone is feeling without taking any accountability. Mm. And it's, you know, the reason apologies in general are so bad is because it requires a level of humility and self-reflection that is very hard to come by. You know, I struggle with it, but I would rather engage in that struggle and do the right thing because it's the right thing than to not do the right thing and make some sort of half-assed apology or do nothing at all. We see what that gets you, which is nothing good. You know, I also think that beyond the apology, there has to be 
some kind of reparation. So that's the one thing I do that I'm very proud of is that whatever apology you make is only as good as what you do after the apology. And that's where I like to invest as much of my energy as possible. When you wrote Hunger, you write in the opening passages just how hard it was for you to write that book. Yes. And if it was that hard for you to write that book, and I fully believe you, there's some bravery in that. But how do you feel when people refer to it as brave? You know, I think, guys, no, this isn't bravery. I just did it. But I do, again, recognize why people feel that way. You know, with Hunger, it was so terrifying to imagine writing that book and making myself vulnerable in the ways that would be required in order for the book to be what I wanted it to be, which was to write about fatness from within the experience of fatness without weight loss at the end of the journey as, Mm. oh, I've solved it. I figured it out. Everything's fine now. So what is it just like to live in a fat body where you're not on some sort of magical weight loss quest? Because most books about bodies and weight are, in one way or another, about weight loss. You know, you don't read a lot about what it's like to go to a place and have to deal with chairs that are inadequate or people who stare or whatever. I just thought, I'm going to write about my life. And it was hard, but I am very proud of the book that came out of that. Mm. It's been five years, I think, Mm. since you released that book. Do you think the treatment of fatness by the medical establishment has changed at all in that time, even a little bit? Yes, it has, but not enough. Hunger is now taught in a lot of medical schools, at least in the U.S., and that is one of the most unexpected side effects of my career. That's an incredible achievement. It is. It's the one thing I'm very proud of. You are, you are raising a generation of better doctors. I'm trying. That's not bad. And the bar is so low. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> talk to fat people like they're human. But doctors have reached out to me I get at least a letter a week from a doctor who has read Hunger and says that my book has changed their entire practice and their entire way of relating to patients. And to know that I am helping other fat people out there get the health care that they deserve is incredibly meaningful and it makes all of the frustrations of writing the book absolutely worthwhile. But there's a long way to go, you know, Doctors are terrified of fatness. And in many ways, I think it's because they know that without health care, eventually, you're going to need to see a doctor. And they see what happens, and they attribute it strictly to fatness without realizing that because you're so shitty to fat people, they haven't gone to the doctor for 30 years. So by the time you go to the doctor 30 years later, you're going to have some shit going on. And they're not willing to sort of look at that and unpack that. And so they just say fatness is terrible, lose weight. But they say that, like I remember going in for a sore throat. And on the first thing, they had written three things on my chart. And number one was obesity. And I was just like, I just need some penicillin, man. Like, 
could you hook me up and like not worry because my throat isn't too fat. So I just keep hoping that things will get better because so many fat people, I remember the first week that Hunger came out, which was quite a week, this guy came up to me in Philadelphia and he, I was like, wow, a man at one of my events. And he told me that his wife had died that yesterday, the day before, and she was fat and she had never gone to the doctor. And he thanked me for writing Hunger because he hopes that it will save someone else's wife. And I've never forgotten that, and I've never forgotten that man because he was shattered and he still came to my event to honor his wife's memory. And like nobody should have to live like that in fear of doctors. I mean, even now, I don't go to the doctor unless someone in my household forces me to. <laughs> I'm not going to name names, Deborah. <laughs> There's this culture in, in newsrooms, and particularly in websites that are aimed at women, that push young writers to mine their lives for content, mm-hmm. and particularly mine their trauma for content. Yes. Um, and the reason I thought of it then was I remember a colleague who... Uh, in the past was asked consistently to write about her childhood trauma and her weight. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's where she wanted to be. Mm -hmm. If it was where she wanted to play, great. But I don't think that's the content she wanted. And for so many marginalised women in the media, there is this push of tell your personal story, make it hurt, do it again, Mm -hmm. get the clicks and start again next week. I don't know how you shift that power imbalance but how do you give, and there'll be a lot of young aspiring writers in this room, how do you give young writers the power to know that they can say, stop, I'm not doing that? Well, what I tell young writers, both in my classroom and beyond, is that you are far more than the worst thing that's ever happened to you. And if you never write about that, you are no less a writer than anyone else. And I always encourage young writers, don't do it unless you really want to, unless that's something you want to write about. And I also say that to people when it comes to writing about identity. Just because you're black doesn't mean you want to write about race. Like, frankly, that's the last thing most of us want to write about. (laughs) You know, I want to write about Bravo television. Um, I was re-watching an episode of Million Dollar Listing today, and I also watched um, The Great British Sewing Bee, or whatever. Yes. And I just want to write about that all day. Like, that sewing bee was just very wholesome. And I was very pleased to see, like, they were really like, I'm going to sew this stitch. And I was on the edge of my seat, like, yes, girl, yes. You know, and so we contain multitudes. And that extends to who we are, what we've experienced, and what we care about. And the best way to be able to write about whatever the hell you want is to have a day job. And so when you give yourself that shitty day job that ends at five and you leave it and then you go home and you do what you want to do with your writing, it frees you up. Mm. It keeps you from having to force yourself to get into the content churn where you just mine and mine and mine 
until you have nothing left for yourself. There's a new one called The Great Pottery Barn Throwdown. Mm-hmm. Um, and the oh, world yeah. of pottery We've watched is it. amazing. <laughs> it's so good. Listen, if there is like a wholesome reality show where everyone's super helpful to one another, <laughs> and like I also watched The Great Australian Bake Off when we got here, and at home we watched The Great British Baking Show. It's, I know it's Baking Show. Um, I love it. Oh my God, just give me like a bunch of bad teeth people just <laughs> talking about how they're baking trifles. Oh, <laughs> I live for it. It's so glorious, and I want to go on that show. I do. My friend Monique is here tonight. She went home fourth on the first season on croissants. It was devastating. Listen, okay. She's good at croissants. I know we're talking about important stuff, but I have been trying to bake croissants for two years. That shit is hard. It is. It is. My, the, every time I make them, they just come out jankety. Just <laughs> jankety, jankety. But I'm, I haven't given up. Did you go through the sourdough thing in the States like we did? Well, the States did go through a sourdough crisis, but (laughs) I did bake a lot, but it wasn't sourdough. I made baguettes. I tried croissants several times. I made lots and lots of cakes. I taught myself how to cake decorate during the pandemic. Like legit? Oh, hell yeah. I I just realized what I was doing with my hand, but I think you know what I meant. I pipe frosting. Piping, that's what I meant. I could work at the grocery store bakery. I could. Next level, hidden talents. Mm -hmm. All right, back to writing. Yes. Um, I want to ask about the mechanics of writing Mm -hmm. because you're a teacher as well as a practitioner. I am. When you're writing, how do you avoid straying into the space of telling the audience what they need to know and showing them what they need to know? Well, I trust the reader to do some of that work and... I just try to give them enough context to then finish the work that they need to finish. In general, readers are incredibly smart and they're going to do that work. And so when you trust the reader, that gives you the space to show all you want. When you tell the reader too much, when you tell them what you want them to think, they start to feel manipulated and because they are being manipulated. And so I would rather not condescend to my readers in that way. I trust them very much. And I also trust myself, at least on the page, to know what to say and how. And I wish I could quantify it more clearly at times, especially I'm writing a book of writing advice right now. And (laughs) almost every day I just open the word file and I'm just like, I don't know. I just do it. <laughs> and, but, you know, I just try to trust the reader. You apparently got into basically every Ivy League college you applied for. I did. <laughs> <laughs> Except for Brown. And every time I go to Brown, I tell them, <laughs> you could have had this. I understand that when you were accepted to Yale, you had a classmate who kind of dismissed it mm-hmm. as an affirmative action pick. He did, a cross player. Yeah. There's been a lot of conversations in this country recently around quotas in different circumstances, whether it's parliamentary, universities, whatever it looks mm-hmm. like. 
And I think that there are some people who are beneficiaries of quotas who come up against what you did again mm -hmm. and again and again, that diminishing sense that undermines the benefit they were designed for in the first place. Yes. How did you push back against it? You know, it's an ongoing project because almost everything I achieve, I'm told by someone, and generally someone who resents that I have gotten something they did not or could not. Oh, affirmative action. And so it really is a very insidious thing because it makes you doubt yourself and it makes you think, oh, I'm not good enough. I'm just black enough. So I have to just remind myself, no, that's not the case. And I particularly remind myself that, look, I have a great work ethic in general. I work my ass off. And so whatever forces beyond hard work are at play, I earned it. I deserve to be in whatever room I'm in. And I just continually remind myself of this. And it's just frustrating to have to do that because all of the energy I'm spending reminding myself that I deserve to be in the world could be spent like working on my book. <laughs> <sighs> oh, hi, baby. Yeah, welcome to the small person. I love small people. You're a woman of many talents, but chiefly it's about words, right? And the publishing industry in the US and the publishing industry here is very white. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing that change in the States? Because it feels like things are moving faster there than they are here. And how do we do that? Um, they are moving faster there than here, but that's not saying much. <laughs> Things are getting better in the US. I think it's really important to acknowledge progress as hard as it is because when you look at the work yet to be done, you just think, oh my God, let's not get too excited. At least now we know the extent of the problem. Mm. We can put numbers to it year after year. And so that means, okay, we know what we need to do to improve and we know how to measure improvement. And there are more people of color entering publishing at every level except the top. And that's where the problem is. It's yeah. like, yes, we can hire interns and fellows and junior editors, but what about the publishers? What about the senior editors? The talented people are there to fill these positions. They really are. But publishing is a very incestuous world where they are very set in their ways and a lot of the old ways of sort of doing business continue to thrive. Last week, a young editor put a tweet out and I, I believe she was white, but it, that's neither here nor there. She was writing about how she's leaving publishing because she has a book that's currently on the bestseller list and she still can't get promoted to editor. <laughs> as an editor, she edited this book. And you know, when you can do something great and hit the holy grail of publishing and you're still not good enough, now imagine what the black people dealing in publishing are dealing with. And this, the bar just is even higher, the sort of darker you are and the further again away you are from what people consider the norm. So it's an ongoing project. But you have to sort of hold their feet to the fire. And unfortunately, a lot of it is that people in powerful positions have to mandate that they change. 
And so, like, for my upcoming book contract, I mandated that they have to hire a black publicist. And when I started my imprint, I mandated that they have to hire a black person at any, at any field, whatever, to work at the company because they didn't have any black people. Mm. And I love my publisher, Grove Atlantic, I do, but come on. Like, what's the excuse? Mm. So I'm trying not to make this too parochial because Australians do that very well. But I think this is a common problem. We've had a bit of a conversation this week in the media about a campaign that was launched, a good political campaign. Um, Oh, they're all laughing. A good political campaign on behalf of women, asking for good, solid policy changes. And it was criticised for the large number of white women who were fronting the campaign. And it was, there were complexities and people left out of photo shoots and time. there were all these reasons, right? And I think as women of colour, we often feel like we should pipe down uh-huh. because for the greater good of the cause, yes. we want that campaign to get the airtime it deserves. But by speaking up, we rob it of the airtime it deserves and often everyone hates us because we spoke up anyway. Uh-huh. How do you manage that day to day? Because I imagine for you, you were asked for your opinion on those kinds of moments again and again and again. I am. And so I try to be smart about when I offer my opinion and I try to make sure that my opinion is actually going to matter, is actually mm-hmm. going to be meaningful. And I also just try to gauge, you know, when it would be better for me to step back, when it would be better for me to listen rather than speak. And in general, I trust my gut on that. But I do think that a lot of times people of color do say, you know what, I'm just going to not say anything because I want this to happen. I want this to move forward and I don't want to muddy the water, so to speak. And I think that's actually not the right way to go about it because we see what happens when you sort of step back and kind of like let white people run off with things. They tend to be very like horse blinders. Mm. Like they only see, oh my God, we have to fix things for women and they assume that all women are the same and they forget about the other aspects of our identities that inform who we are and how we understand the world and so again I believe there's a word for this Hmm. (laughs) intersectionality (laughs) and so I do think it's important to remember that at all times that we can't let any one group dominate these conversations because it really does take all of us. And until we're all seated at the table, it doesn't really matter. It just doesn't. That's it for my conversation with Roxanne Gay. You can find her books at any good bookstore. I won't list them all because there are just too many, but I personally recommend Hunger and Bad Feminist. I want to say thank you so much to the Wheeler Centre for sharing this audio with us. And if you want to check out some of their events, you can do so at wheelercentre.com. And now it's time for the weekend list. Braun has jumped into the studio and I'm hoping that she has found something better to watch than season two of Bridgerton, which she slammed last week and I have watched since and she was wrong, everyone. <laughs> I, I, it was just too slow. Maybe I am a bit more smutty than you, Jamila, and I, I, I think want you the- are. You are only in it for the sexy bits. I know. My bad. Whoops. I've learned a lot about myself. <laughs> 
No, I've got another Netflix um, one for us this week. So Bad Vegan, it's a four-part Netflix documentary. It's from the director of Fire Festival, which was another great doco. It was. It's basically about this woman who owns this really hot raw vegan bar in New York City. It's very successful. She meets this guy online. This is another um, swindler sort of fraud story. She meets this guy online who she thinks is the real deal. He's like talking to Alec Baldwin all the time online. He has 50,000 followers. She gets into a relationship with him. He promises her the world. He promises her all this money, immortality of her dog and herself. It's just wild. And then you kind of get to the question at the end of like, is it someone that's being brainwashed? Is it their fault if they do something illegal or are they completely exempt from anything because they were brainwashed? I don't know. It's very interesting. I would highly recommend. Some of the money coming from the restaurant business, it went straight to Anthony's pocket. He tells her, if you don't keep going along, you'll lose everything you ever cared about. Whereas if a popular Manhattan vegan restaurant are under arrest, accused of ripping off their workers. I said that I felt like she was stealing from us and I was fired. All right. This, I feel like that's almost become a genre in itself now, right? Yeah. Like the kind of the, this person uh, ripped people off or was really dodgy or pretended they were someone they're not. Like that's almost like a new genre of TV and I'm really here for it. I know it's so hot at the moment. I want to uh, recommend something very much related to the conversation you all just listened to with Roxanne Gay. I am an enormous Roxanne Gay fan, as you could, as you could probably tell. Um, my favourite of her books, and that's saying something because I really do love everything she writes is Hunger, a memoir of my body. It is truly a brilliant piece of work. It is intimate and sensitive about Roxanne's own emotional and psychological struggles with food and with her own body. It looks at ideas of pleasure and appearance and consumption. Roxanne talks about desire and she talks about denial. She talks about comforting yourself with food and caring for your body with food. And it's it's not an anti-diet book. It's just a deeply personal exploration of what it is to be a fat woman in a world that says that is not okay and that your body is not acceptable and also to exist within Roxanne's own head. And if you're someone who has ever sort of struggled with food or what your body looks like or how your body behaves or how other people perceive it, I think you will find truth in this memoir. She was amazing. I fell in love with her during that conversation, Jamila. <laughs> I was already in love, but I did it again. Bron, what else have you got? Um, so we've got a podcast. So have you heard of Office Ladies? Um, no. It's with Jenna Fisher and Angela Kenzie who were on the TV show The Office Together, the US version. So they're putting out an episode every week where they watch an episode of the TV show and then dissect it um, <laughs> on the podcast and then they get people who are either in it or you know, directors or actors or writers of the show to come on and explain the behind the scenes stories of what actually happened on this beloved TV show. So the one this week was Scott's Tots, which had BJ Novak come on as a guest, which is just an iconic episode of The Office. If you are a fan of that show, it is one of the 
you know, the one most talked about episodes, I would say. Um, so it was, yeah, really interesting listen. And they put out new episodes every week. So if you're a fan of The Office, I think you would get a lot out of this podcast because they go just deep on how it actually came together. And it's just wild. I love a behind the scenes of a TV show podcast, especially something I've loved in the past. It's like revisiting an old friend and learning something about that person that you didn't know before. Something quite delicious about it. It's so good. And speaking of delicious folks, it is Easter this weekend and I am really here for the food. Everybody, I'm not a religious person. I'm here for the food. I'm here for all of the different sweet things that you are permitted to eat over the next four days. So I want to recommend to you my favorite hot cross bun recipe. I have tried many a hot cross bun recipe in my time. I have made sort of rock-like, very hard, concrete sort of hot cross buns in the past. And over much practice and the pursuit of many recipes, I have finally nailed it a couple of years ago. And now I never use any other recipe. It's from Not Quite Nigella. She's a food blogger and she blogs at notquitenigella.com, all as one word. And her recipe for hot cost buns is the best. It is the absolute best. I think uh, part of the charm of this recipe is that you soak all of the fruit in whiskey for 24 hours before, and it just makes it that much better. Um, It's not too hard. Yes, there's yeast for non-bakers. That can be a bit terrifying, but you can do it. If I can do it, you can do it. And you may as well make your own hot cross buns this weekend. And once you get sorted on the traditional recipe, you can start doing wacky things like adding chocolate and apple and all sorts of fun stuff. Yum. That sounds so good. I hope you have a wonderful long weekend, Bron. And so to you, everyone who is listening, please stay safe on the roads. Look after yourselves. I think we all deserve a rest after the first few months of 2022. It feels like we've had all these years in a row with false starts and now we're doing a a real proper year out in the wild and it's quite exhausting. So everyone take a little break. Uh, I hope you look after yourselves. If you would like to hear more from The Briefing Podcast, then you should follow us in the Listener app or or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, you should subscribe, you should rate, you should review. It will help other people to find the briefing and the weekend briefing. We will be back bright and early Monday morning where the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.